A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today we're in Renaissance Italy, with a family admired by Machiavelli for their audacity and ruthlessness, a family whose history is said to have inspired Mario Puzzo's depiction of the Corleones in his novel The Godfather. But do the Borgias deserve their reputation for depravity? How did they rise to power? How did a man with that many illegitimate children become Pope? Did his son Cesare commit fratricide? Were their entertainments pure cruelty? And was their ostentatious extravagance considered magnificent or immoral. To find out, I'm speaking to Mary Hollingsworth. She holds a PhD in Renaissance art from the University of East Anglia and is the author of a number of wonderful books on the period, among them Princes of the Renaissance, The Medici, Conclave 1559, The Cardinal's Hat, and the book we're going to be talking about today, The Borgias, History's Most Notorious Dynasty. Mary, it is lovely to see you, and I relish the chance to talk to you about Renaissance society and the Borgias. This is wonderful. Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me. So perhaps we can start with some scene setting, some sort of sense of context of what Renaissance Italian society in the late 15th century was like. In other words, what do we need to know to understand the world in which Rodrigo Borgia operated? I think we need to understand for a start that it's a very class-ridden world. The nobles are completely different from people in trade and people who work on the land and ownership of people. In all sorts of ways, it's a period which we would find quite offensive. People aren't exactly slaves, but there is an awful lot of ownership of people and expectations that people will do what you're told. It's a massively more violent society. And life is short. Life is much, much shorter. Although quite a lot of people, particularly the wealthy, do live quite long lives, there were all sorts of diseases they didn't have cures for. If you got appendicitis, that was the end. And childbirth was a major killer of women. So at the birth of children, you didn't really fall in love with them at birth. You got to know them a bit later. All sorts of things are exactly the same, of course, but the goalposts are slightly different. And can you give us some sense of the importance of the Pope at this time? The Pope then is different to what he is now. For a start, most of the principal difference would be he was a secular ruler as well as a 
religious, spiritual leader in the sense that well, I know that the current Pope is ruler of the Vatican City, but what is now Vatican City is a sort of tiny version of the Papal States, which extended all the way north to Ferrara and all the way south to the borders with the Kingdom of Naples. So the big stretch of land and the Popes were in control over who operated. The people they appointed as their sort of governors and things in the various places, that was entirely their whim. If they wanted to sack somebody, they just did. They were secular as well as spiritual rulers. It's difficult to understand what it must have been like then, but it was absolutely the substructure of all society throughout Europe at that stage. So in that sense, the Pope had a spiritual authority backed up by his secular power, which gave him vastly more influence than he has nowadays. You know, if you were a secular ruler involved in a dispute with one of your neighbours, you wanted the Pope on your side because that would swing the decision effectively. Well, can you introduce to us then the Borgia family and particularly Rodrigo Borgia's rise to eminence in the church? So Rodrigo Borgia was born just outside Valencia in Spain and his family were minor nobility. They definitely were nobility. One of them had done something good, some good fighting, and they got a little castle not far from Valencia. And aged 15, his uncle, amazingly, was elected Pope very unexpectedly. His uncle was quite elderly and he'd only been a cardinal for three years. He was a mild, quite an important figure in the ending of the schism. You know, he was a politician, a sort of moderate. He believed in getting two sides to agree, and this was eventually what he did. And as a reward was made, a cardinal. But the important point was he was elected Pope as a compromise candidate because he was easily the oldest member in the college. I think he was in his mid-70s, and he wasn't expected to live that long. So they elected him on the off chance that quite soon they'd be able to elect somebody else they all agreed on. He was a very short-lived Pope, just three years. But during those three years, he promoted Rodrigo and Rodrigo's cousin to careers in the church and gave them unprecedented power and wealth. And he didn't just make Rodrigo a cardinal, he also made him vice-chancellor of the church. It's one of the positions where you could earn vast amounts of money by bribery and fair amount of corruption. Why do you think that Rodrigo's uncle, as Pope, gave this extraordinary level of wealth and power to his nephews? Was it just sort of the enrichment of the family? You wanted people around you that you could trust. And the only people that you could really trust were close family. All the way through the Middle Ages, all popes appointed one of their nephews or a cousin or something, somebody with whom your family interests were intimately linked as a result. That was the reason. But it was not just to do with enriching your family. Nobody trusted anybody. If you wanted to rise up, well, you just had to work the political game, as people we know do now, only too well. <laughs> And what should we make of Rodrigo Borgia's character? It seems that contemporary opinions on him varied considerably. I would say he must have been fun. He must have been clever. He was quite good looking. He was urbane. He enjoyed his wealth. He wasn't a hair shirt sort of religious person. He wasn't, I would say, remotely religious at all, really, except in the conventional sense that, you know, he automatically did these things like go to mass because that's what you did. He wasn't pious in the same way, for example, as his uncle was quite a pious person. And he was fun and he was completely unsuited to the celibate life. He'd had plenty of girlfriends, plenty of mistresses, 
the Pope before him, Pius II, kept having to tell him off because he was causing trouble. You know, he kept going to parties when he shouldn't have been and chatting up young girls in secluded corners of gardens and things like that. There's a lovely line in your book from a contemporary observer who says something about that, that it's quite remarkable how beautiful women are attracted to him more powerfully even than a magnet attracts iron. And I think it wasn't just because he was good looking. I mean, the pictures of him don't make him conventionally good looking or it's difficult to see it. But he must have had sex appeal. He must also have been fun. Was he also, though, economical with the truth, as some people suggested, ambitious, lacking sincerity? I don't think he was alone. I think people chose the truth they wanted other people to hear. People would spread fake news without even hesitation. And there's a lot of fake news in the Borgia papacy. Now, a sexual relationship at that time nearly always meant children. How many children did Rodrigo have? And was there any stigma attached to bastardy and those of churchmen? It's a very tricky thing. There's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that in Italy there is very little stigma attached to illegitimate children, partly because there's so many of them. Not all popes had illegitimate children, but most of the rulers did. So like the king of Naples, for example, his eldest son, who inherited the throne of Naples, Alfonso's son, Ferrante. Ferrante was illegitimate. The Duke of Milan was illegitimate. Plenty of rulers. Certainly in the 16th century, foreigners go, it's amazing how illegitimacy is perfectly acceptable in Italy, because of course we wouldn't have it here at all. Northern European courts didn't do illegitimate rule, and nor did Spain, for example, which is why Alfonso of Aragon had to leave Aragon to his brother, because he couldn't leave it to his son, because his son was illegitimate, but he got Naples instead. You couldn't become a cardinal if you were illegitimate. But on the other hand, it was only a matter of signing a few documents to make you legitimate. And all of Rodrigo's children were legitimised in various ways. The earlier ones, as a paper from earlier popes, but a lot of them by him himself. So he became Pope, and the story of his election is an interesting one. How was he elected Pope? Did he buy his position or was he chosen? Well, I don't know whether you could really distinguish in a way between the two. One of the important points in a papal election, you aren't just necessarily fighting to get yourself elected. If you can't get yourself elected, you want to get somebody elected who is going to bring you benefits. Whichever one they think is going to win, the haverers will back. And the more you can do that, the better your chances are of advancing your own position within the College of Cardinals. And when you are elected, you then have all your pre-election positions that you have in the church, of which Rodrigo had a lot. So he had very lucrative bishoprics and benefices in Spain, and he was vice-chancellor of the church. He had a fantastic palace in Rome. He had a lot of favours to hand out. He had abbeys, I mean, really lucrative stuff. And so if you were on his side and you'd helped him be elected, you were inevitably going to get one of these plum jobs. And the story is that he persuaded the Sforza Cardinal, Ascanio Sforza, if he supported Rodrigo's candidacy, if he were elected, then he would make Ascanio give him vice chancellor and give him the palace, which is what happened. And that's, you know, the accusations of buying come from that particular story, which is unquestionably pretty much true. What is not mentioned, it happened in every other papal conclave as well, that same sort of pattern. That's why Paul III, the Farnese Pope, managed to be elected because one of the things he did was he had largesse to hand out. That's interesting. And I definitely want to come back to the Borgia's reputation and why then 
this election gets tainted with charges of corruption when it's actually what's done pretty much every time. One of the things that is often mentioned with regards to the Borgias is magnificence. And I imagine that it was incumbent upon and expected of a pope that they would demonstrate magnificence. But when Rodrigo Borgia became Pope Alexander VI, was his level of extravagance shocking? Not really. It was secular, I think, which is shocking to some. It was certainly shocking to reformers within the church. One of the problems about the church is, of course, it has a dual background. One is apostolic life of Christ and the apostles, which was, you know, simple food, simple existence, simple way of life, and the grandiosity of the religion once it became the religion of the Roman Empire under the later emperors. And the worship of the church was also about effectively worship of the imperial family. And so spaces in which they worshipped had to be grand enough to be appropriate for an emperor as well as for a pope. There is that tantalising complication throughout the history of Christianity. I suppose it's part of the background for the Reformation. But it is definitely there. And those people were appalled by Rodrigo's excesses. I mean, the fact that he was extravagant and lived extravagantly, spent his money, I think it's exactly what any king did. It's exactly what most emperors, not all, but a lot of emperors didn't have access to quite the same amount of money. But the king of France and the king of England did. The way that they lived, Rodrigo was as vice-chancellor and then as pope, was living in very much the same way, but effectively as a secular ruler. And that was the thing that is criticised. Yes, you're right, because, of course, Balthazar Castiglione writes about the need for a king or a ruler to be magnificent, you know, very soon after this. But it's critical because it was the way that you displayed power and authority. The richer and more powerful you are, the bigger your entourage, for example. I mean, I've spent quite a lot of time working on Oddly, Rodrigo's grandson, who's Cardinal Hippolyta d'Este, and you can see the cost of grandeur. It is very clear when, for example, he goes to France to join the court, he knows he's got to look the part to be accepted and be respected in any sense. You would see Italians going to royal courts, particularly going to France. It's always the same, what you wear, how well you performed in the jousting ring, how well you hunted, all this kind of thing. So given that he was this temporal as well as spiritual ruler, and that we've got a period of time in which international political affairs are full of rivalries and war and exploration. Did he show the sort of necessary shrewdness in playing the political game? Was that one of his skill sets? I would say yes. But I think the point is that he knew how to play the politician. And I think it's shortly after his first year in power, some contemporary judges him. He's made friends with the King of Naples. He's made friends with the Duke of Milan. These were sworn enemies, I should say. You know, if you make friends with both of them, You're doing something, you know, you're clever, you're being clever. So I would say shrewd, but the motivation is for his family. And so there comes a point where the shrewdness and the personal clash, at the beginning they don't, but they do a bit later on. Yes, so if his family is driving him, and given he has all these children, as Pope, was he unusual in so openly acknowledging his children and seeking their advancement? Yes, he definitely wasn't the first pope to have children. He certainly wasn't the first cardinal or the only cardinal of the period to have children. But it was significant that he had them all living, certainly the sons, lived in the Vatican Palace. I mean, that wasn't heard of. Strictly speaking, a pope is celibate. According to the Catholic Church, that is a fact. 
somehow living with your mistress and your children in the Vatican Palace doesn't look like celibacy to anyone observing. And other popes have also not been celibate, but perhaps not quite so blatant in their display of their children. I mean, it is true that Pius II displayed his family. I mean, he promoted his family, but more aggressively, as did Sixtus IV. But neither of these were actually their children. They were definitely nephews involved. Hello everyone, James Rogers here, the host of the Warfare podcast by History Hit. I'm a war historian who works with the UN, NATO and governments around the world. Twice a week, every week, we bring you the defining wars of history and learn about the history of emerging wars. The passengers and crew of 149 were trapped trapped and delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein. We hear from the veterans who served. Guards there would grab a machine gun and fire at us as we went over and could see the splinters flying in all directions. Through to world-leading historians providing context to understand current conflicts. Finland obviously couldn't join NATO, which makes the two Finnish leaders' statements about Finland deciding for itself whether it will join NATO. That makes those statements even more important. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hits on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on the front lines of military history. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Within a few years of Rodrigo becoming Pope Alexander VI, one of his sons, Juan Borgia, Duke of Gandia, experienced a rather terrible fate. Tell me what happened and who you think was responsible. 
The Duke of Gandhi was his second son. Rodriguez's eldest son died before he became Pope, and the Duke of Gandia succeeded as the Duke of Gandia. And the third son is Cesare Borgia, the one with whom most people will be a bit more familiar. And in January 1498, so that's sort of four and a bit years into his pontificate, the body of the Duke of Gandia is found floating in the Tiber, and he'd evidently been murdered. He had stab wounds. I mean, it was a scandal. And the interesting thing is that there's the evidence of a man who sold wood on the banks of the Tiber. You know, that's where you could easily get the wood up from the river. And he claims to have seen the night of the murder, two people on horseback basically attacking and getting the body thrown into the river. And he very sensibly kept out of it, didn't say a thing. They were obviously wealthy. That's the only thing you can be certain of, is that they weren't poor. Now, the rumours about who did it, principal rumours were about the Swartzer family. One of the members of the Swartzer family did it. Their sister, their youngest sister, Lucretia, was married to one of the Swartzer cousins, a cousin of Cardinal Ascanian. And it was decided that this was no longer politically the right thing. And so they were trying to engineer a divorce between Lucretia and Giovanni Sforza. And the one argument is that he didn't want the divorce to take place or whatever. So it was his fault. Then somebody else argued that it was Ascanio, the cousin. He had done the deed. And nobody was ever charged with the murder. That in itself is extremely unusual. And the Duke of Gandia's wife, the Duchess of Gandia, who was in Spain with their young son, was firmly convinced it was Chasery himself that killed his brother. And she then commissioned an altarpiece, which commemorates the event with Chasery stabbing his brother in the back. And the other thing that you have to ask yourself is who benefited from the qui bono is always well worth thinking of. And obviously the one person who did benefit was Chasery because he'd been made a cardinal by the stage and he simply did not want to be a cardinal. He wanted to be a duke, and he wanted a secular career, and he wanted to be a soldier. And this was the one way that he could do it. Also, he probably wanted to be the favourite in his father's eyes and not the Duke of Gandia. So the dukedom was inherited by the Duke of Gandia's young son. And Chasery, within six months of the murder, informed his father that he wanted you know, to have his red hat taken away from him, which is quite a difficult and complicated procedure because technically a card was created for life. You know, there are reasons why it can happen and there are examples of it happening, but it's always in order to continue a dynasty, you know, like Medici Dukes of Florence, for example, Ferdinando was a cardinal for a long time and his brother failed to produce an heir and he had to basically take a wife and beget children, poor man. But, you know, so they do it out of a sort of family duty. But this wasn't family duty. I mean, he wanted the family position. In the end, he got it. But the really important thing I go back to, though, is that nobody was arrested and the rumours spread. It would have been so easy to arrest somebody anybody, frankly. I mean, the wood seller, why not, you know, but they didn't arrest anybody. And the rumours died down. How interesting. So it's in the, the lack of a conviction that we see the real evidence of who did it in many ways. A lot of the people who were accused evidently didn't do it. I mean, for example, Giovanni Sforza, who was accused of it, couldn't have, he was known to have been in Pesaro when it happened. So he couldn't possibly, you know, Pesaro to Rome is two days minimum ride. 
And that's riding all the time. And that's over mountains. You know, there's no way he could have just whipped in and done it and got back home in time for his alibi to work. I mean, and Ascanio's thoughts are possibly, but it would have been a very odd thing for him to do. And there was no particular reason. So Lucrezia's had her first marriage to Giovanni Sforza annulled. And then she marries again and her second husband is murdered. And this is just at the age of 20. And we know that that was by Cesare because the first thing that happens is that he gets attacked on the steps of St Peter's by some men with daggers and they don't kill him. He's wounded. They take him inside into the Vatican and Lucretia nurses him back to health. And one afternoon, while he's lying in bed, feeling a lot better, Cesare's henchman, a Spaniard, comes in to the room and murders him in his bed. One of the things he wants is to become king of Naples. And this was part of a way of doing it. It was also a way of ensuring that he was in the process of conquering his duchy in the Romagna state. So that is the northernmost states of the papal state, just south of Venice. The idea was that if he married the Duke of Ferrara's heir, then that would at least partially safeguard his position as Duke of the Romagna. So poor old Lucretia was married off again. So is this the beginning of the development of a kind of (laughs) godfather-like reputation for the Borgias? Yes, I've always thought that the sad thing about that reputation is that it's no different from all the other big papal dynasties all did the same thing. They're all guilty of murder. They're all guilty of, honestly, some far worse crimes. But over the years, it's been covered up. The Medici in particular, their appalling behaviour has been completely covered up by thick layers of, you know, Medici worship in Florence, amongst art historians, amongst historians. The Borgias didn't have anybody after the death of Cesare and Rodrigo. There weren't any Borgias in Italy, really, to rewrite the history of the family. And the ones in Spain stayed clear. Ah, so they didn't have the right PR machine. But Cesare Borgia, the picture that we get given of him is that, that he was physically beautiful and morally depraved and vengeful and cruel and ruthless. Is any of that fair then? Yes. Chasery was certainly more brutal, more ruthless than his father. For example, there's a point at which during the conquest of the Romagna, he has a meeting. A group of his captains decide that he's a bit overbearing and they plot to kill him off. But it's obviously leaked to Chasery and Chasery invites all of them to a meeting in a small town in northeastern Italy and has them murdered one by one as they walk into the meeting. That's a kind of level of brutality that I don't think Rodrigo would have done, nor do I think that's normal. And he wasn't that good a politician in the way that his father was. And, you know, I mean, he worked on the principle that if I can't force it to happen, then I'm just going to be brutal, you know, and take what I want. And there were all sorts of very stupid mistakes that he made, which he shouldn't have made if he'd thought it through. The real problem about being a papal nephew or a papal son in this particular case is once your protector, your father or your uncle dies, then you are at the mercy of whoever comes next. And so it behoves you to be very, very careful about who you support. And Rodrigo Borgia's main enemy right through his career was somebody called Giuliano della Rovere, who was another papal nephew, the nephew of Sixtus IV. And Rodrigo Borgia had planned for this, that as Pope, he knew this was likely to happen. And just shortly before he died, gave red hats to an awful lot of men, a substantial proportion of whom were Spanish, who would obviously back Cesare in any bid for power. 
And of course, Giuliano della Rovere, who was also not known really for his kind of subtlety, oiled his way up to Cesare and said when his father had died, suggesting that if Cesare would hand him the votes of all the Spanish cardinals, he, Giuliano, would guarantee Cesare's duchy of the Romagna. I mean, what a stupid man. Cesare just agreed. I mean, that was madness. You know, he was arrested sort of a week after the election. Giuliano was elected, obviously, after a conclave that lasted less than a day, with no opposition at all, with the support of all the Spanish. And within a week, Chasery was a prisoner and shipped off to Spain. So it was a bit of a kind of error. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So that's the removal of his patron after his father has died. But if we scooch back a little bit, back to this sort of question of cruelty, I suppose, thinking of that moment in time when before Lucretia left to marry her third husband we have descriptions of the so-called ballet of the chestnuts or the party of the naked courtesans and two weeks later we have the incident with the mares and the stallions I do want you to tell us what happened but I also want you to say what you make of them and what they tell us about the Borgias about Renaissance Rome do you think these episodes of entertainment were fundamentally cruel? The chestnuts, the party, which is basically a party to which a lot of courtesan prostitutes were asked to, and they were naked. There was a game about picking the chestnuts off the ground in their mouths, which meant them bending down. That's the kind of party that definitely existed throughout probably the Middle Ages, but certainly the Renaissance. I mean, things like that. That wasn't a party that you would expect the Pope to be at, and it certainly wouldn't expect it to happen in the Vatican. So that's one of the problems. That would have been particularly exceptional. So mares and the stallions, there's another example of it happening in 16th century Florence of sort of a stallion on heat put into a corral with a lot of mares to be watched by the public as part of a sort of entertainment for carnival and that kind of thing. I think that shot when it happened in Florence in the 16th century, because there were young girls present, it was a sort of boys only kind of thing or sort of fun, but it wasn't the sort of things you expected innocent girls to see. So I wouldn't like to say for certain that it was depraved by the standards of the time. What is significant is that it was all known about. The other thing is that a lot of this stuff comes from a diary that was kept by the papal master of ceremonies, Johannes Burkhardt, who recorded everything that went on. We have similar diaries, you know, from quite a lot of papal reigns, but they're not normally quite so chatty. The later ones, by the middle of the 16th century, they're much more formal, and they very much disguise the seamier side of life in the Vatican. Okay, so we've got the fact that these, as you say, nice word for it, seamy activities happening, and also these instances of animal cruelty are part of the society at the time. The unusual thing, perhaps, is that they're happening in the Vatican, but maybe they happened at other times. We just happen to have the right chronicler who's telling us about them at this point in time. Yes, I mean, I think the other thing is, I really don't know what went on in the Palazzo Farnese, but there was nobody there writing it down, that's for certain. And also, Alessandro Farnese was a very different sort of personality. My instinct, which is for what it's worth, is that these things went on. You know, they had cockfighting, bear baiting. They did the most extraordinary things, like every year at Carnival in Rome, you know, they would throw pig down the hill. You know, the peasants at the bottom would fight to secure themselves a pig or a piece of a pig, which, if you think about it, involves a lot of very nasty things going on with knives and the bottom of the hill. Life is short and it's not valued quite so highly as we do. 
nasty brutish and short, as Thomas Hobbes later said, I suppose. Can we talk a bit about Lucretia Borgia? I'm really struck by the moment that you talk about in your book in 1501 when Alexander VI took a trip and left Lucretia in charge of papal affairs during his absence. That surely was unprecedented and it also tells us something about her, I would have thought. Yes, I think that tells you two things. One is it was definitely unprecedented. I mean, but it wasn't unprecedented to have a woman in charge necessarily, but that was quite rare. It was much commoner. Funny enough, there are quite a few examples of counter-reformation popes whose sisters stay in charge of state affairs in their brother's absence. But no, it is quite unusual. What is important is that when she married Alfonso Deste, you know, she did the same for him. Now, that was normal. It was completely normal for the wife of a secular ruler to take over and run a country while their partner was away during the fighting season earning money. I mean, basically, that's how they lived. So that was quite a normal thing to do. It was normal for a secular ruler, which is another example of Rodrigo behaving as a secular ruler, not as a spiritual leader. But she was actually very good at it. We know this from Alfonso Desta himself. He wasn't particularly loquacious, but he really admired the way that she carried on. And she was adored in Ferrara. People really did like her. You know, she was a very popular woman and she cared. The other thing that was really extraordinary about her wasn't a great patron like her sister-in-law, Isabella d'Este, but she just used her money to buy up land and sort of invest. That is also unusual. And her life during that marriage to Alfonso d'Este seems to have been consumed by this terrible succession of stillbirths and miscarriages and infants who died. It strikes me that it must have been unbearably hard, both on her body and on her heart. I think if you know that the chances of your child living relatively small, maybe 50%, something like that. I mean, some people, all of them survive. For others, none survive. I mean, Duke Francesco de' Medici, every single one of his wife's endless daughters all died as babies, as children, or were stillborn. I mean, it's sort of a tragedy. And a purple fever is, you know, that's another thing they didn't understand. If the midwife had washed her hands before helping with the birth, probably there would have been no infection. She married in 1501. The first living child, Ercole, was born in 1508. And Hippolyto, Cardinal Hippolyto, was born in 1509. And she had practically a child a year. Awful. And she had purple fever several times. The weather, floods and heat and cold, all seem to almost be a character in this story. And it's the heat in the August of 1503 that plays the pivotal role. Can we talk about that moment? It's the heat in 1503, August it was too. They stayed in Rome, unusually, it was normally the popes would leave, and went to have dinner at somebody's house and seemed to have picked up, I'm not quite sure what, some infection. And Chesery was very ill, but survived, and Rodrigo died. It's not entirely clear what was wrong with him. Obviously, there were claims of poison, but there are always claims of poison. As to conclude, we've discussed a little bit about why the Borgias have been regarded so negatively and the lack of that PR machine. But they have also done something rather extraordinary. that They have become practically infamous. They have lived on and had so many outings over the years. I suppose there's another part of that question, which is why have they become so famous or infamous in the centuries since, do you think? 
I suppose they've exercised a fascination thanks to a negative PR job done on them by all their enemies. Right. And that has exercised a complete fascination, I would say, since probably the 19th, possibly the 18th century. And just the idea of Lucretia the Poisoner is something that is in opera, in literature and chasery, obviously. And also the story of the Borgias is the basis for Mario Puzzo's book on the Corleone family and the Godfather. And what is important is that it's a way of life that is continuous from the Renaissance to 20th century Sicily. It's a way of family. And family in those days was a much broader word. It didn't just mean blood. The word family, it meant all the people you had around you. So your household, your courtiers, you know, the people that you trusted, I suppose. You know, if you want to sell a book, it's got to have sex and murder and sex and violence in it. The sex and violence side of the Borgia story is alive and kicking and prolifically growing, whereas the sex and violence side of the Medici is kept rather quiet. And as you say, in fact, it's going on both sides and the Borgias themselves are great patrons. One of the things I learned from your book, Cesare's has many faults, but he did appoint a wonderful chief engineer. He did, exactly. Leonardo. Well, thank you so much for talking through the Borgias with us and breaking through a lot of the kind of myths and confused ideas that we have about them. Not that the many of the things that we think of them didn't happen, but that they were happening all the time elsewhere and that this isn't exceptional has been a real revelation to me. Thank you so much for your time, Mary. And people should look out for your beautiful book, which haven't talked about how art is such a part of it. So it's called The Borgias, History's Most Notorious Dynasty. And it's an absolutely glorious thing and really worth having as part of your collection, having a look at. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I'm excited to tell you about a very special offer over on History Hit. On History Hit, we are building the world's best history channel on demand, and we would love to share it with you. History Hit releases two exclusive new documentaries every week. I've made one called Becoming Anne, and we've got another one coming up very soon. And you'll also get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad free. That's not just with me or not just the Tudors, but also across all eras of history, including, of course, the mighty Dan Snow's history hit, Gone Medieval with Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman, The Ancients with Tristan Hughes, Betwixt the Sheets with Kate Lister, Patented with Dallas Campbell and Warfare with James Rogers. So get over to History Hit now. You can find the link in the episode notes below this podcast. And, and this is the crucial thing, use the codes Tudors or NJTT for not just the Tudors to get two weeks free for your monthly subscription, followed by your first three months with 50% off. Get over to History Hit and avail yourself of this splendid offer. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.